Chapter 9 The way that mathematical symmetry appears in nature is as elegant and beautiful a thing as there is in the universe. Professor Emmy Nutter loved teaching the first term of senior-level quantum physics. Thirty of the University of California's finest faced her in an auditorium with a capacity for 300. We're going to take our time with this derivation, okay? I want you to feel this. It's what art students feel when they study Renoir, what music students feel the first time they play Brahms, what computer science students feel when they learn, I don't know, cueing theory? Emmy smiled, giving the class permission to laugh. Turning back to the board, she tossed her long, wavy hair out of her eyes. Her hair was currently brown with blonde streaks. She'd been dyeing it different colors since she was ten and wasn't sure what its natural color might be. Blonde like her mother's, brown like her father's, or black like her brother's. She drew symbols on the whiteboard with a black pen. Symbols in a language as arcane to most people as drudical runes. But this really was the language of nature. It was this mathematical purity that had drawn Emmy to physics. We start with a general wave function like this. She scribbled a Greek letter on the whiteboard. Let this symbol describe the evolution of a system in space and time. It could be a hydrogen atom, a black hole, the mold growing on your roommate's pillow, anything you want. Now watch. Multiply it by this function of time. She turned back to face her class. Two young men sat in the front row, overachieving A students, Mike and Rob. To Emmy's left, Tran, a thin, pale, Asian man with a razor-sharp part in his hair, stared back. A month ago, Tran had been tentative, afraid to demonstrate ignorance. Now, when he had a question, he blurted it out as a challenge without even raising his hand. Lori, the only female student, sat ten rows back in the center of a cluster of young men. Lori disappointed Emmy. No stranger to being the only woman in a room of men, she hoped Lori would grow into a scientist. Instead, she sat there playing soap opera games with her boyfriends. The function of time resets the clock. That's all. You can think of it like daylight savings time. Now, can you think of a reason that the system should behave differently by resetting the clock? Mike and Rob whispered to each other. Emmy watched the class, encouraging them with a smile here, a little nod there. She turned back to the board. Let's see what happens when we apply the principle of least action. Remember from last year? The universe is lazy. In going from one state to another, a system takes the easiest way possible. Balls roll downhill, frat boys barf at parties, stars cool as they expand. Mike and Rob nodded. Lori stared at her notes. Pencil poised, and Tran pulled a second notebook from his briefcase. Emmy wove calculus and algebra across three whiteboards. Most of the students copied it to their notes verbatim, but a few raced her to the result. Finally, the symbols boiled down to a compact equation. This was it. She could feel her students' minds working. A wave of affection welled up. She spoke softly, so that they had to strain to hear. Now, consider how everything simplifies. Whoa, Mike mumbled. Conservation of energy? Emmy danced up on her tiptoes and clapped. Mike's eyes flashed understanding. She wanted to hug him. You've just accomplished one of the most noble goals of humanity.
You derived the first law of thermodynamics. Energy is neither created nor destroyed. It merely changes form. She waited, staring at Tran. He took a little longer than the others, but when comprehension came to him, it was so complete that he could reformulate and expand a theory in ways that few others could. She skipped across the room to the first symbol she'd written. We've related the single most fundamental law of nature directly to the way that time passes. Tran's brow furrowed, and he scribbled furiously. Rob leaned over to Mike and whispered. Across the room, some of the students flipped through their notes, some stared intently, and one was reading a newspaper. Finally, Tran raised his hand. Tran hadn't raised his hand in a month. Emmy held her arms out to him. He said, Dr. Nutter, does this mean that it's not energy that's special, but time? Emmy felt the familiar thrill, the reason she taught. He got it. She scanned her kids, waiting for them to look up. Yes, the laws of nature are not dictated by the matter that fills the universe, but by the geometry of space and time. She leaned against the center of the whiteboard and spread out her arms. Look what we did! We're just a bunch of organic matter, but we proved, proved, that the law of conservation of energy, that the total energy in a system is fixed, is a direct consequence of the fact that if we do an experiment on Tuesday, we'll get the same results as on Thursday or, or Saturday or next year. Emmy bounced up and down. This special relationship between energy and time is a mathematical symmetry. Energy and time are like mathematical reflections of each other. Any questions? She made eye contact with every student. Tran interrupted. Does this mean that for every mathematical symmetry there is also a fundamental law of nature? Emmy wondered if you could pass out from joy. Mike whispered, Wow. In full lecture form, she said, Let me give you an example where it doesn't work. You're going to love this. She erased a section of whiteboard and drew a stick figure looking at itself in a mirror. What do you see when you look in a mirror? Tran said, Your reflection with left and right reversed. Exactly. Switching left and right is a symmetry transformation. If we were to study the mirror image of the universe, which amounts to switching the positive and negative x-axes, would anything change? If not, then there is an unbroken symmetry, and for every unbroken symmetry, there is a corresponding law of nature. Think of time as a line, one dimension stretching from past to future. That the geometry of time itself is the same anywhere on that line leads to the law of conservation of energy. She walked up the aisle and leaned toward Lori as if to share a secret. Our universe is symmetric between the past and future but it's not symmetric under a switch of right and left. If it were, there might be equal amounts of matter and antimatter. Trying to understand how this works is the point of my research across the bay at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, SLAC. The clock ticked to 10.50. The student in the top row tossed aside his newspaper and walked out of the room. The other students packed their notebooks and laptops into their backpacks. Fifteen minutes later, Emmy was in her office on the hill over the Cal campus at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. She had three offices around the Bay Area, this one, where she spent most of her time, 
one in the physics department on campus that she only visited to hold office hours, and one at Slack. She set her notes down and saw her phone's message light blinking. She picked up the phone and punched in her pin. The message was from her brother, Dodge. She could guess that he'd called for a favor. Dodge was almost fifteen years older than Emmy, and though he had doted on her since the day she was born, he had been ensnaring her in schemes since she could walk. At thirty-four, she thought she'd matured beyond the reach of his scheming. Dodge answered on the first ring and didn't waste time with pleasantries. "'Can you read a couple of patents for me?' Instead of replying, she sipped her coffee and relaxed at her desk. She was pleased to hear his voice, but knew better than to encourage him. After a few seconds, Dodge launched into the sad story of his new tenant. A good guy, but down on his luck. A talented engineer burned by his employer, who had a couple of inventions whose rights had been purchased by a university. When he finished, she said, "'So you conned this poor guy into giving you a piece of the action on patents that he doesn't even own?' She dropped down a few octaves when she said, "'A piece of the action.' mimicking her brother. "'The contract hasn't been written that doesn't have a hole that I can't find,' Dodge said. "'Between the four winds of menace, fraud, undue influence, and mistake, I'll find a way to get a piece of the action.' He went up an octave to mock her. "'It's a great case.' Then his voice took a different turn, a turn that she'd heard before and should have recognized." especially if I can get it in front of a jury. What university bought them? Now I've got you, Dodge chuckled. <laughs> See, that's the weirdest thing about it. Evangelical Word University, somewhere in Texas. Evangelical Word University? Never heard of it. Okay, Dodge, I have real work to do. Five minutes, that's all I want. A quick look at these patents. No more. Emmy groaned, but brought up a web browser and surfed to the patent office web page. Dodge told her the patent number. She downloaded the text and started skimming. Dodge, I'm not an engineer. I don't know what this... Wait a minute. This is kind of interesting. No. She started to giggle. In contrast to her brother's raspy chuckle, Emmy's rang with the song of a schoolgirl but the overall effect, mixed with her sharp blue eyes and accompanied by just the wisp of a smile, conveyed the same sense of ironic amusement. Okay, here's the giveaway line. Realization of the symmetric conditions of the Big Bang allow energy release through vacuum fluctuations. She stopped laughing. Please tell me this is a bad joke. Dodge said, Why would anyone invest in them? Remember cold fusion? What about it? It was totally debunked over 15 years ago, but people still invest in it. The memory of the cold fusion debacle brought a flush of embarrassment. She had been a first-year graduate student at Caltech when Pons and Fleischmann announced their results. Unlimited cheap energy produced by nuclear fusion at room temperature on a tabletop. At that point in her career, she had known enough to understand how it might work, but hadn't yet developed the scientific acumen to question the important details. In the excitement, she designed an experiment to reproduce the results. Then she manipulated a fellow graduate student into putting her on the physics department colloquium agenda. 
She proposed her experiment with unvarnished naive confidence to the entire department. A Nobel laureate professor, obviously impatient, had interrupted her. Why have you no gamma ray detectors? She would never forget standing in front of all those distinguished men floundering for an answer. She had missed the point. And it was the only point that mattered. Nuclear fusion is characterized by emission of gamma rays, essentially ultra-ultraviolet light. No gamma rays meant no fusion. It was the most embarrassing moment of her life. After the colloquium, he had come up to her and said, The beauty of physics is that you can understand it yourself. You don't need faith in anything, but you have to think it all the way through. Emmy dispelled the memory by focusing on the patent. These guys were totally clever. This one on energy creation? The name alone should have set off alarms at the patent office. I like the other one better. It's subtle. She took her time reading through the preferred embodiment section of the patent disclosure. In a way, it's brilliant. If I'd read it without seeing the energy creation one first, it's a delightful idea for a neural network. Then she laughed. A real laugh, not her version of the family chortle. Except for this one line. Further sentience is created through conception of another intelligence, for example, by insemination of one network by said original network, resulting in, as detailed below, a proliferation of intelligences, each possessing the ability to choose with progressively greater liberty. I've heard about engineers toying with the patent office like this. But why a university? Dodge, please call me sometime when you aren't scheming, okay? Please? Will you testify as an expert witness if I go to court? He said it with that tone again. And this time, Emmy noticed, but instead of amplifying her suspicion, she was distracted by the image of herself in court, teaching the legal system that science is beyond political interpretation. If you get that far, I'll testify, for sure. But listen, Dodge, no meetings in smoke-filled rooms. I will only participate to prevent those charlatans from deceiving the scientifically illiterate. She paused for a second to make sure he was listening, and then spoke loud and clear. Everything I say has to be public. Do you understand? Chapter 10 Dodge liked to think of himself as a card shark, and what he liked best in life was to stack the deck. The trick was to assure that nothing, no change, no nuance, not the slightest fluctuation occurred without his knowledge and, therefore, his ability to react with the appropriate check or bet. Over the years, he played lots of hands, and not only had he developed a wide network of associates, he was an expert at developing new sources of information. He made calls to Evangelical Word University until he found something that resembled the science and engineering department. A woman with a thick Texas twang answered. Dodge sensed that this woman, Mabel Watson, wore a constant nervous smile. When he asked about the patents, she directed him to a company called Creation Energy. She gave him the number and laughed as she hung up. Dodge dialed it, and the same woman answered the phone, still laughing. Creation Energy wasn't related to Evangelical Word University. It was wholly owned and operated right there in the Department of Earthly Science.
Dodge asked about investment opportunities, and she gave him the phone number of the chief financial officer, a guy named Blair Keene. He thanked her, but then, instead of hanging up, cultivated her as an informant. The first step was to ask her about the weather. She went on a long, boring trek along the lines of, If you don't like the weather around here, just wait ten minutes. Then he got her talking about family, found out she had a son who was some kind of modern cowboy on a ranch between San Antonio and Austin. Dodge liked the idea of hiring some muscle in the neighborhood, so he told her a lie about being interested in buying a West Texas ranch. He said that he needed a consultant and asked if her son might help. Dodge tried not to chuckle as she gave him her son's contact information. His name was Dale Watson. Since the cards were hot, he went with the direct approach. Seeing as he was investing down there, he told her that he'd need some information periodically. She took the hint literally and spewed university gossip, covering rumors from the chancellor to the janitor. It took a good hour, but he learned that she was Foster Reed's secretary. Dodge skimmed his notes to double-check the name. Ryan McNear's old pal. He managed to resist laughing at that tidbit. When she finally let him off the phone, he contacted her son, Dale, found out where he lived, asked some bullshit questions, and sent him 50 bucks to establish that he was on the payroll. A phone call to an old associate in Houston returned more information on the chief financial officer, Blair Keene, a trial attorney who dumped money into right-wing Christian causes and was well-connected in the local government, especially high-tech regulation, i.e., the patent office. Monitoring the company website turned out to be the easiest way to watch their progress. When something changed, he'd call Mabel, flirt with her a little, listen, take notes, and then, after hanging up, send her a 50. His plan required two simple steps. Wait until Creation Energy had attracted enough investment that it would be worthwhile to sue, and cultivate Ryan's sense of greed and injustice to a frothy anger. Dodge rubbed his hands together, yearning for the day that Ryan would storm into his office, demanding that they sue the bastards. He misjudged the strength of his hand on that one. Chapter 11 The excitement of escaping arrest in Texas and zipping across the country and landing in Northern California's wine country left a reality hangover. Ryan was farther from his son than ever, and as hard as he tried to deny it, he even caught himself missing Tammy, the poison he'd fallen for in his weakest moment. With the sun rising over the valley, Ryan booted up his tired old PC and put the kettle on. He was stirring sugar into a cup of strong black tea when Nutter House awoke to the sound of Katerina's stereo. Ryan combed through internet job sites and listened to Katerina yelling at her mother. He had the same feeling he got on long airplane flights. Right after sitting down and buckling in, he'd wonder about the people sitting next to him, energized by the knowledge that they'd be friends by the end of the flight. He polished off his second cup of tea, scrawled the addresses of some nearby tech companies on a pad of paper, and headed for the door. As he started down the stairs, Katerina slid down the wide, smooth banister behind him and almost bowled him over. In one seamless motion, she descended the stairs, jumped out the door, and onto her skateboard. Ryan spent the day stuttering in front of impatient human resources officers. He had no answer to the first question they asked. 
Why have you been out of high tech for three years? When he got back to Nutter House, he surrendered to the desire to call home, what he thought of as home, anyway. His ex-wife, Linda, answered, but wouldn't let him talk to Sean. She rubbed it in pretty well, too. Sean has a better daddy now. He's finished with you, sperm donor. Then she hung up. Over the next few weeks, he tried phoning the house at different times. If Linda answered, she hung up immediately. One time, her new husband answered, a man twenty years older than Linda and Ryan, and said, Sean is fine, and the three of us are very happy. Don't worry about him, and please leave us alone. Early one Saturday morning, Sean answered. Ryan said what he'd always said. How's it going, buddy? And Sean said, Buddy? You calling me buddy? You're no buddy. Nobody to me. The Chan's voice was changing, stretched the feeling of distance even farther than his words. Ryan stopped calling. Instead, he found an old email distribution list for the neighborhood. He sent a note asking if anyone would let him know how Sean was doing. Kind of a desperate message, but someone actually replied. Ryan couldn't quite place the guy. His name was Ward. He replied every week with a single-sentence report. He'd seen Sean at a church fundraiser or getting home from a football, baseball, or soccer game. It was just enough information for Ryan to feel connected. Chapter 12 A month after Ryan moved in, Dodge invited him down to his office for a drink. Dodge thought Ryan was an interesting case, outwardly calm and easygoing, but constantly fidgeting. He couldn't tell whether Ryan's constantly tapping fingers was nerves or excess energy. There was a difference. So he poured them each a tumbler of whiskey and then waited. Ryan swirled his drink in one hand and tapped his fingers in time with the reverberation of music from upstairs. Dodge set his fingertips together and pretended to stare at them, but kept an eye on the revolver he left out on the desk. Obviously not realizing what he was doing, Ryan started rubbing his fingers along the short barrel. Dodge tried not to laugh. The instant that Ryan realized he was touching the gun, he jerked his fingers away. Dodge couldn't hold it any longer. His laughter finished in a cough. Dodge said, <coughs> Tell me everything about your patents. Ryan told him the story of his first day at GoldCon, about the $500 bonus just for submitting them, and the 5000 for having them approved. Stop! Dodge interrupted. Run that by me again? Well, when the patents were granted, I got two checks for $2,500 because I'd co-authored two patents. Foster got two checks, too. Get it? We split the 5000 for each patent. But for submitting the patents, you each got checks for $500? Right. So they gave each of you the full award when the patents were submitted, but split the awards between you when they were granted? Lines formed in Ryan's brow, arcing up to the sharp widow's peak of his dark auburn wire bristle hair. Yeah, but it was fair enough. Two authors on each, after all. We were psyched that they didn't split the submission bonus, too. His forehead relaxed. We got our boat. Do you remember anything, anything, in the documentation describing the patent award bonus? 
about splitting the award for multiple authors? I don't think so. You're not sure? Ryan shrugged. Dodge said, Was there any difference between the phrasing of the bonus for submitting the patents and the phrasing of the bonus for when the patents were granted? Ryan shook his head. No, I'm sure of that. It definitely said the same thing for submitting as it did for granting. Did you get the patent submission bonus before you got the patent granted bonus? Yeah, it took almost a year for the patents to go through. Dodge leaned back in his chair. Glee filled his stomach. If he played it right, there would be a quick settlement with just enough rancor to make it sporting. Nice. Dodge said, I don't suppose you still have that document. Ryan shook his head. Dodge continued. They paid you in full for both patent submissions, but only gave you half when they were granted. In legal terms, by giving you the full amount for the submission, they defined an implied contract. The implied contract guaranteed you each the full amount when the patents were granted. They didn't deliver. Bingo! Fraud marries mistake and gives birth to an implied contract. That patent rights waiver you signed is out the window. You still have rights to those patents. God, I love this! Dodge flicked his wrist at Ryan, waving him out of the office. There was a case to plan. Dodge flicked his 